0: You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K.
1: The jihadi groups have moved to smaller scale attacks or simply inspired attacks where they use social media or other kinds of communications to induce people to carry out an attack with a gun or an automobile or a homemade bomb.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. On this week's show, Ben looks at the cozy relationship between Ring and local law enforcement. I'll share a story about DNA tests and search warrants, and later in the show, my interview with Michael Chertoff, former U.S. Secretary of Homeland Security. We want to remind you that while this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. And now a word from our sponsor, SixSense. SixSense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit com. Ben, why don't you start things off for us this week?
2: Sure. So there have been a series of articles on the website Gizmodo relating to Amazon's Ring technology, which is that security camera, smart device that you post on the front of your house. Mm-hmm. It can surveil your neighbors while they walk by. Uh, <laughs> well, that's one use for that's it. That's one actually. use of it. Uh, obviously, <laughs> yeah. it is very legitimate law enforcement right. and personal security right. Uh, purposes. <laughs> right. Uh, first and foremost, if I want to know who's at my door when they literally ring the doorbell. There's the name. There's right? the, the name. Ring, that's where it comes doorbell. from. Yep. So the series of articles has talked about the evolving relationship between ring which is now owned by Amazon as it has been for the past year and local law enforcement departments. Hmm. The article that piqued my interest was about how Ring had provided the police in a Florida jurisdiction with statistics about the users who said no to various law enforcement requests. Hmm. So there's this app called Neighbors. It's completely voluntary. If you own a Ring device, you download the app and you can voluntarily help police solve crimes by sharing your uh, Ring surveillance video. Yep. And what Ring had done is give information, or this is at least what's alleged in the article, they gave information to local law enforcement as to whether users had responded for Ring's request to submit that data. Now, Hmm. again, this is entirely voluntary. Uh, Users can opt out of participating in the Neighbors app, although I can imagine there's some sort of social pressure that's involved in that. This sort of opened a Pandora's box for me in terms of Ring's close relationship with various law enforcement agencies across the country. They talked about one jurisdiction in California where... Where Ring started a, a program where they were providing Ring devices free of charge to as a, a promotion through the city to some of that city's residents. They've also sort of been coordinating their messaging. So as part of ring contracts with various local police departments, the police departments are not allowed to describe ring devices as a form of surveillance. And I think that's hmm. important for their branding purposes. But, you know, it's interesting to me that law enforcement has been willing to abide by that. This article that I have sort of gave us a window into Just how ubiquitous user submitted data is. So they did a study of Fort Lauderdale, Florida. They said that the police had a 3.5% success rate when requesting footage. So there were 319 videos that were sought by law enforcement. They were only given permission to view eleven, so that hmm. data was submitted by Ring to law enforcement. That's interesting. That's actually lower than I would expect. Uh, it, w- it was eye-opening for me too. Part of it is people might n- just might not be plugged in enough to respond to these requests. Yeah, but then there are obviously very legitimate civil liberties concerns. It can feel very invasive, even for a voluntary program. Right, and there might be a perverse effect of. Seeing that law enforcement has requested the data because that might trigger in somebody's brain. Oh, like the police can actually get a hold of this. Like Mm -hmm. what happens if they discover something that I've done that's been captured on my ring security camera? Right. And so that actually might be a deterrent effect. So even though the data that's being sent to the police department is not individualized, it still sort of gives an indication to ring customers that law enforcement can potentially have access and has a ongoing, persistent relationship with Ring and with Amazon. And so I think, you know, that might awaken some people to potential privacy and civil liberties concerns.
0: Yeah, this is really interesting to me. I have a lot of neighbors who have Ring devices. I do not, and I have no plans to get one. But you don't have to be a Ring customer to install this app on your phone. And I have the app on my phone, and so I will regularly get alerts from neighbors or people you know, in my, not in my immediate neighborhood, but the area around where I live. And they're posting videos of strange people walking by their houses. And some of them are legitimate things that you would be concerned about. People going through cars late at night, you know, if someone leaves their car unlocked. But other ones are like, somebody walks by in front of the house and- Looks suspicious, yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, looks suspicious is in, in air quotes, yes. right? <laughs> but I agree with you that this cozy relationship between the police and Ring gives me a little bit of pause. At the same time, I can understand how this could be a good thing for law enforcement to try to establish a case. If something happens in a neighborhood and you have this sort of net of of these video devices all over the neighborhood and you can establish where someone was at different times throughout the day or night. Well, that's a
2: law enforcement officer's dream, isn't it? It is. And the CEO of Ring, uh, and maybe this is a statement that he or she, it's Jamie Siminoff, regrets at this point but they said the company's goal is to have every law enforcement agency on the police portal. So I mean it's an indication that although Ring is not intended to be a surveillance system, that could be one of its practical effects. Now I've seen it used in our neighborhood, you know, Facebook group to to solve crimes, and you have to recognize the value that it would provide to law enforcement. It's crowdsourced. Its coverage has become broader as more people get these devices. It goes places that traditional like blue light security cameras wouldn't be able to access, like hmm. just in front of a person's house as opposed to like a, an overhead view of the street or, or something like that. So you understand the law enforcement value from a perpetrator's perspective. You obviously have have no rights Whatever video surveillance is taken as as you walk by people's houses, you are out in public, Mm -hmm. uh, just as it would be with any surveillance camera. Um, You've relinquished your reasonable expectation of privacy. But for the users, I think there are significant, even in a, a program where it's voluntary to share information, the company's reiterated that it's voluntary. Law enforcement has reiterated it. There might be a chilling effect to how much you share with law enforcement If you are aware of the close relationship between the manufacturer of the technology and the law enforcement agencies that you might not trust to begin with, the other element that I think is particularly alarming to people is Ring's now owned by Amazon, and Amazon has developed the most sophisticated facial recognition technology in the industry. And there's sort of this fear that over time, Ring will start to integrate facial recognition. So not only can law enforcement request surveillance taken from a, a Ring device, but they would also be able to use facial recognition software to potentially identify that suspect. This is something that's sort of in its early development stages. But you can obviously see well that why that would pose a big red flag. There are obviously many civil liberties problems with facial recognition software. Right. Um, like all sort of artificial intelligence. It's amazingly even more racist than we are. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> which, uh, you know. That's an interesting way to put
0: it. Given <laughs> humanity's history is,
2: is a, a difficult feat to accomplish. So, you know, that's when the relationship between Ring and law enforcement might lead to something that's more problematic.
0: I wonder, too, about if, for example, law enforcement have an idea of who within a neighborhood do or do not have one of these ring cameras. And that could be as easy as walking the neighborhood and looking at everybody's front doors
2: because they have a distinctive look to them. Sure. So that would be the hard, the harder way to do it. The easy way to do it, which is what a lot of cities have done, has been to set up sort of ring discount program. So sign up, give us your name and address. We'll give you a discount on this ring device. But then are you obligated to share your footage in exchange for the discount? So you're not obligated to share your footage, but then they know who has ring devices. I see. So they would know who to contact and they have, you know, you're on the proverbial list.
0: Right, right. And I just imagine a, a police officer knocking on my front door and saying, hey, we're trying to solve a crime and we really need your help here." That it's that, that could be a hard request to turn down, even if you were someone who, you know, generally is not interested in sharing your information with the police. Uh, a one-on-one request
2: like that, I could feel like th- they have influence on me to to turn over that footage. Absolutely. It's always a very fine line between what's voluntary and what's being compelled. And this, I think, is a, is very illustrative of that line. Technically, it's voluntary, but, you know, by refusing to comply with this request, you're potentially making enemies out of your neighbors because I've been on my neighborhood Facebook group. Everyone says, have you seen a guy with a blue hat and a gray shirt? Like, there's sort of this expectation among the community that if, if you have a piece of information, you'll bring it forward. So there's right, sort of right. that uh, communal <laughs> pressure and then you also potentially don't want to be on law enforcement's bad side.
0: Right. And meanwhile you're sitting on your couch in your blue hat and gray shirt wondering why everybody what everybody has against you.
2: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and why did I have to walk on that block where everyone had a ring device? Right. Exactly. So you're just
0: walking your dog. Mine I was just walking minding your my own d- business. <laughs> exactly.
2: I would say the broader lesson we can take from all of this is surveillance is so pervasive now. It's sort of infested its way into all aspects of our life. And for each instance where we have this 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 new digital style of of surveillance where law enforcement could potentially gain access to it, you're going to run into these problems where the information is so valuable. And the reason it's valuable is because it's it's broad, it's comprehensive, it has a a very wide reach. And so there's going to have to be this balance between giving law enforcement the information they need to solve crimes, which is obviously of the utmost public interest, right? and making sure that users of these devices have their their privacy protected. And it's a really, really difficult line to straddle.
0: Yeah, it's interesting to watch it play out in real time. I can't help wondering how it'll settle down by the time these sorts of things affect our, our young kids.
2: Absolutely. You never know the technology is going to be in 30 years. It's probably going to be something we couldn't even dream up in our in our wildest imagination. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that's what makes this area of law and policy so interesting. You know, it's not like we have a lot of settled case law related to smart devices that people use as doorbells and security cameras. It's the the devices are relatively new. The technology is new. And these relationships are going to have to be defined going forward.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, uh, it's an interesting story and certainly one that's developing. We'll, we'll keep our eye on it. Absolutely. Um, my story this week comes from the New York Times. This is an article by Kashmir Hill and Heather Murphy. It's titled, Your DNA Profile is Private, a Florida Judge just said otherwise. Now, Ben, you and I have talked on the CyberWire about DNA tests. They've been used to solve some serious crimes. There was the the case uh, back in 2018 where they tracked down the man that they believe is the Golden State Killer.
2: Right. And they that was, was one of the, that was a remarkable story just because it had been one of those unsolved mysteries you'd see on like An old 1990s episode of Dateline. I mean, it was so compelling. And then all of a sudden it it comes forward because of these genealogy databases.
0: (laughs) Right. And, And they were able to use DNA that had been submitted by this alleged perpetrator's relatives
2: to connect back to this person. I've already called all my relatives and told them, do <laughs> not use any of these genealogy databases. You're going to get us all arrested. I
0: fear it's too late. And, and we'll get to the value proposition for different right. folks in a minute. But what this story is about is that a Florida detective recently uh, in the midst of a presentation at a police convention uh, shared that he had obtained a warrant to penetrate one of these DNA databases and search its full database. And they had nearly a million years on it. This is one of the smaller DNA database companies. It says GEDmatch is the name of this one. And what's interesting to me about this is that the judge gave him a warrant and this allowed him to search even the data of people who had opted out of sharing their information with people like law enforcement.
2: Yeah. So that particular company, GD Match, has an opt-out provision. Some of the other companies that you've probably heard of that do this genealogical work like Ancestry.com mm-hmm. and 23andMe have even more strict policies where they've pledged to, no matter what, keep users' genetic information private. <laughs> it's one of those things where you can only keep it private as long as law enforcement does not get involved. And when they're able to obtain a warrant even if you've made it clear to your customers that you are protecting their data, your hands might might be tied.
0: So it's going to be interesting to see where this goes. The detective who did this search, who got this warrant, his name is Michael Fields. He's from the Orlando Police Department. He says that this will likely lead to them requesting warrants from the larger dna companies the 23andme the ancestry.com and my opinion when it comes to these sorts of things has been pretty much along the lines that i'm okay with you selling that to a judge and a judge saying to the police officer okay we think this is worth doing and here's your warrant but i think it's really important for the police officer to have to make that case that the police officer doesn't have just open access to the whole database
2: Yeah, I mean, that's what's particularly problematic to me, because the perpetrator that they're going to find did not voluntarily submit their DNA, or at least most likely did not voluntarily submit DNA. It was submitted most often by very distant relatives who Hmm. the alleged perpetrator probably had no relationship with. Yeah. So even though they're getting a warrant to search the the database for evidence for solving a a particular crime, and that would meet the traditional definition uh, to satisfy the warrant requirements, You get into this hazy gray area where there's been no voluntary submission to these third parties, to these genealogy companies by the person who is the subject of the warrant. And so to me, that that's uh, very problematic. The other Hmm. thing that's problematic is users of these agreements will often see language that says something like, we would never share your data under any circumstances unless compelled by a law enforcement agency through, you know, through a warrants. And most but, of us read that and say, that means they're never going to share our data. Now we have this one case where the police did the legwork. They were able to secure the warrant, although we don't know exactly what went into that warrant application. And, you know, so there might now be an increased awareness that just because they say they are going to protect your data, once the police come with a warrant, there's very little they can do as companies to stop it. Mm-hmm. And will it, it'll affect their reputation in terms of protecting personal privacy. And that will probably end up affecting their bottom line.
0: Yeah. And, you know, that's a really interesting point, because after this story broke, I saw a lot of people, particularly information security people on Twitter and other places, saying, hey, everybody, just a reminder, please, please don't submit your DNA to these databases, because these are the things that can happen. Now, I understand that impulse, and I certainly respect anybody who doesn't want
2: to submit their DNA for all sorts of good reasons. But hey, you know what, if my great uncles third cousin didn't want to get caught. And they shouldn't have committed that crime in the first place. Well, but I strength. think
0: even, yeah, but even beyond, you know, criminal stuff, th- it's the idea that your biometric information is forever yes. and it can't be altered. You mm-hmm. can't, like you, you can change a password. You can't change your DNA. You cannot. But I, I just sort of give everyone a friendly reminder that there are groups of people for whom these tests have a different value proposition. I have family members who are adopted hmm. and have found family
2: through these things that they otherwise would not have found. And so that's interesting. I mean, one of the things I was going to say is that mostly in third party records cases, you're dealing with something where the user doesn't really have meaningful choice. So, Hmm. you know, we've talked about call detail records, like, In modern society, we generally don't have any agency as to whether we use a telephone. We have to for modern communications. Right. In order to carry on modern life, we have to use some sort of financial services. So Mm -hmm. we're going to generate bank records. What I was potentially going to say is, at least for most people, submitting your saliva for DNA testing sounds like something you would do out of curiosity. It's not something that would be a necessity. But what you bring up, I think, is a very valid point, you know, even if 99% of people who submitted their saliva for a DNA test, we're just curious about their genealogy, wanting to know, you know, what percentage Irish they are, what percentage Eastern European they are. Right. You're gonna get those cases where it's for something more meaningful. And so I think that's that's something that we really have to keep in mind as people who, who are trying to balance these privacy concerns.
0: Yeah. I think I saw another statistic today. It was something along the lines that we're at the point now with the number of people who have done these tests that they can identify about sixty percent of the population, they think think by the the sort of web of of DNA tests that have been done and and you know every of the world population of the US of the US, of the the US. Yeah. and it seems to me that you know, every holiday season you get uh, more and more of these gets purchased as gifts and so you sort of get a surge right after the holidays where that web gets filled in a little tighter and uh, you get more connections made every year so i wonder Are we going to approach a point where it doesn't really matter if you submit yours or not? Because so many other people have that it can be determined who you are just by inference of all the DNA tests that
2: are already in there. Right. Now, the counter to that is what if there's a reverse movement because of these high profile cases? So. Now we have this California case in 2018 where they solved this Golden State Killer mystery through the use of this genealogy website. As more of these cases become high profile, maybe people in the information security world and elsewhere might think twice about submitting their DNA and it won't be as exponential as we would have expected. Probably just the fact that this article was printed in the New York Times made people think twice for the first time about the potential consequences to themselves and to society writ large about taking this test. And I think that itself could have a huge impact.
0: Yeah. All right. Fascinating stuff for sure. It is time to move on to our listener on the line. This week, we've got a listener who calls in with a question about email and being a small business owner. Here's the call. This is Jessica calling from Denver, Colorado. I'm a small business owner, and I'm wondering what my liabilities are when it comes to deleting or saving emails. Am I better off deleting messages that I no longer need, or should I keep them as documentation of exchanges with customers and clients? Can I get in any legal trouble for deleting these emails? Thank you.
2: Interesting stuff. Uh, what do you think, Ben? So it depends on the con. It's a great question. It certainly depends on the content of the emails. If it's one of those, uh, hey, just want to get your attention about this meeting we're having next week, I think in the vast majority of circumstances, there will be no consequences for deleting those emails. Mm. Where it starts to get more complicated is if emails contain certain records that are protected under federal law. So Mm. emails pertaining to business and financial records fall under a variety of federal statutes that require retention for a certain period. And that'll depend on those type of financial records. There's something like the Income Tax uh, Assessment Act, so anything relating to tax records, for example, has to be retained for five years. Something like employee records, so even like the initial communications between an employer and a potential employee, all those probably have to be maintained under either federal law or contractual agreements between the employer and the employee Or uh, if the employee is a member of organized labor, a member of a union, that might be uh, a contractual obligation. Anything relating to like corporate records, that's obviously going to need to be retained for tax purposes and for legal liability purposes. So it really is going to be heavily dependent on what's contained in those emails. As a rule of thumb, anything that wouldn't constitute a, a record, something that couldn't be interpreted as something that would be useful to... I would say uh, the government or anybody else who might want to get access to something for tax purposes, corporate structure purposes, probably okay to delete it. Anything that has that type of information in it should be retained and it's one of those things the laws around data retention are complicated enough that it's probably a good idea to have an attorney on on retainer if yeah. you can if you can get one to give you exact advice on compliance.
0: I suppose it's safe to say that if you find yourself uh, in some sort of legal situation and there are emails that might be relative to that that the thing not to do is to start frantically deleting things.
2: Yes. Uh, it's always, <laughs> I mean, I would say do not delete mindlessly because it's always better to have those records, especially, you know, if you are subject to an IRS audit. Right. And there's going to be some evidence contained in those emails. Your life is going to be extremely unnecessarily difficult if you just decided to purge emails for no reason.
0: Right. And they could hold that against I mean, in, in terms of getting in trouble, I suppose some people could see that, could say that the very fact that you started frantically deleting things points to the fact that you maybe you had something to hide.
2: Yeah. Certainly, in a civil proceeding, that could be an inference that uh, you might have something to hide, right. and it would probably reflect poorly on you. Okay, but your everyday communications. Your communications with staff, like communications on things that are not essential to the operating functions of your small business, right? So like, right. Hey, I'm yeah.
0: I'm getting lunch. Anybody want anything? Exactly. Like yeah. there
2: aren't going to be federal data retention policies on things like that. All right. So it's it's all about paying attention to the content of the email, which would be the determining factor as to whether you should make a priority to retain it. All right, <laughs> it's complicated. <laughs> it is complicated. I'd say, when in doubt, don't delete it. Uh, most of our email servers now have the capacity to hold a a large number of emails. Yeah. So yeah. unless you're really trying to hide something, probably the the safest bet is to always retain your records as a small business owner. Yeah.
0: All right. Well, again, thanks to our listener for sending that in. We would love to hear from you. If you have a question for us, you can call and leave your question at 410-618-3720. That's 410-618-3720. You can also email us an audio file of your question. Just give us your name, where you're calling in from, and your question, and we may answer it on the air. Coming up next, we've got my interview with former U.S. Secretary of Homeland Security, Michael Chertoff. And we are back. Ben, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Michael Chertoff. He is the former U.S. Secretary of Homeland Security, and now he heads up the Chertoff Group. Here's my conversation with Michael Chertoff. As Secretary of Homeland Security, you had a unique perspective on the terrorist threats that our nation faced. How do you think those threats have evolved in the time since you left office?
1: We still have, of course, violent jihadi groups that want to carry out and do carry out terrorist attacks. We've done, I think, a good job of preventing large-scale attacks, and particularly attacks launched by having people come from around the world into the U.S. as part of a big plan. That's not to say that we're out of the woods yet on that, but I think we've done a fair bit to reduce the risk. As a consequence of that, the jihadi groups have moved to smaller-scale attacks or simply inspired attacks. Where they use social media or other kinds of communications to induce people to carry out an attack with a gun or an automobile or a homemade bomb, those are harder to stop. Obviously, the scale is less than a nine eleven, but it still can result in death and destruction. Add to that the fact that we've seen a significant increase in extremist ideologies that are engaged in terrorist activity. We see it in shootings in churches, mosques, and synagogues. Again, a lot of this has been promoted over the internet with recruiting and inspiration. And again, very difficult to prevent because often the people involved are not dealing with a lot of others. They simply have an online relationship with somebody or they're inspired by a video on YouTube, and then they go off and carry out an attack. And we saw that, for example, in New Zealand, or we saw it at the synagogue in Pittsburgh. And this is, I think, an increasing problem.
0: What about the efforts we've seen when it comes to influence operations? I mean, obviously, we had uh, the interference with the 2016 elections. We see reports that the bots and and the folks who are looking to have those sorts of influences are, are spinning up again for the next round of elections. Were those kinds of things on your radar when you were Homeland Security Secretary?
1: Well, actually, when I was there, which was 2005 to 2009, we weren't really dealing with disinformation at the scale of what we have now. If You go back 50 years or 75 years, the Soviet Union engaged in disinformation, what they used to call active measures. But that was, of course, in the pre-internet era, and it was kind of clumsy and almost laughable in many respects. Although sometimes in some parts of the world, they were quite successful. What we've seen, though, since I left government, is a significant increase in these operations, partly reflecting increased tension between the West and Russia, partly a result of the 2014 Ukraine Maidan revolution, which then led to the occupation of Crimea and the escalation of conflict between Russia and Ukraine, and partly dealing with the explosion of social media, which has created more opportunities for targeted sophisticated information operations designed to create dissension, confusion, and distrust.
0: Where do you come down on the social media platforms? What sort of insights do you have when it comes to things like content moderation and the control of bots?
1: Well, I think, first of all, that uh, platforms ought to be working hard to control botnets that are used to manipulate search engines or manipulate whether something is popular or not, uh, because those are just efforts at deception. And frankly, they even undercut the interest of the social media platforms themselves. Content moderation is a more complicated issue, because we do have free speech. It's an important value. And with the exception of some very narrow categories, our general approach is to say, look, the answer to falsehood is truth. So I think we want to be careful to avoid a regime of censorship with respect to content. But I would say that disclosure of who's actually putting up content, identifying when people are misrepresenting their identity uh, and dealing with these artificial manipulations are something that the platforms ought to take responsibility
0: to do. Where do you suppose we are when it comes to that balance between security and privacy? I'm I'm thinking about technologies like facial recognition and some of those things that are on the horizon.
1: You know, facial recognition can be valuable. For example, useful when you try to open up your phone and your face appears and the phone opens up. The question is what happens with the data? And I think increasingly we need to think about the issue of privacy, not just in terms of what gets collected, but how the data is controlled. There may be uses for facial recognition that are perfectly appropriate, but you want to make sure they don't migrate over to something that would be very inappropriate or threatening. You might want to have facial recognition, for example, to get you access into your apartment or into your place of business, but you wouldn't necessarily want that to be transmitted to the government and be used as a way of surveilling what you do out on the street every single minute of the day. So this is about making sure that there is a degree of control over data that's generated so that people aren't put in an all or nothing situation where either they don't participate at all on these internet activities or they wind up basically surrendering their private interests to commercial interests or government. Where do you come down
0: when it comes to the so-called crypto wars, this, the whole notion of warrant-proof encryption?
1: Well, warrant-proof encryption, what it really means is this, that the entity which receives the warrant doesn't have the key to decrypt the communication. And I understand that that's a heartache for law enforcement, because often they'd like to see the content of a conversation. But the only way to make that generally available under current technology would be to weaken the encryption itself or to create a backdoor or some kind of duplicate key. And the problem is that would be a weakness, not just limited to people who are engaged in bad activities, it would be for everybody. And so if you wound up with the duplicate key getting stolen or the weakness getting discovered, all of a sudden, all your encrypted data would now be available to criminals or foreign adversaries. And I think the security downside of that exceeds the upside of being able to decrypt a particular conversation. I'd also point out this. The government can have laws against encryption or very good encryption on, you know, well-known commercial platforms, but there will always be available in the dark web tools that you can use to encrypt conversations that will not be breakable. And those will be the ones the criminals go to. So in the end, all you'll do is weaken security for everybody and you won't really have much of an impact on any smart criminals.
0: What is your sense of how well we're doing as a nation in response to these threats? Are we in a situation where we're nimble enough to respond to them?
1: I think we are slowly awakening to some of the challenges we've talked about on privacy, on balancing security with encryption, on disinformation campaigns. So you're beginning to see legislation being passed in some of the states. Congress is beginning to propose things. But I will acknowledge that we've been somewhat slow off the mark. And it took a pretty dramatic set of events, like, for example, what happened in the 2016 election, for people to wake up and say, we better get on top of this problem.
2: All right, Ben, what do you think of that? Well, first, major thanks to the secretary for coming on our, our humble podcast. <laughs> it's uh, very nice of him to make the time for us. Absolutely. He is obviously someone with a distinguished career, and uh, I'm really glad that he was able to join us. Uh, a couple of things stuck out to me. Uh, the first is how we talked about the evolution of terrorist groups from the type of large scale attacks we had, 9-11, post-9-11. They were perpetrated by groups with a very top-heavy structure and instructions were given sort of in a hierarchical manner to now these smaller scale attacks where people are using social media or other types of communications to induce people, people who are uh, susceptible to being influenced, to commit smaller scale attacks, so mm-hmm. mass shootings, knife fights, etc. What's interesting about that is a lot of our counterterrorism tools were developed to counter the threats that existed after 9-11, particularly some of the the surveillance tools. When we've talked about call detail records, that was really important. when We wanted to do call chaining to figure out who was talking to whom because we wanted to figure out whether there was a connection between a relatively low level person and the senior leadership of Al-Qaeda. That's going to be very valuable information in that context. Right. But now, you know... Those connections are less important where it only takes you know, one encrypted communication, one YouTube video to inspire extremism uh, across the globe. Mm-hmm. So I think it's going to, uh, and I think he spoke well to this, it's going to take a while for our legal regimes to adapt to the new reality, the new threats that we face uh, in the present day. Hmm.
0: What about his take on the crypto wars? I, I have to say, I, I think
2: uh, I agree with his perspective. Yeah, I was actually sort of surprised. You know, generally somebody who's been in the federal government, you know, obviously his service at the Department of Homeland Security predated some of the major crypto war cases we've seen, like Apple's battle with the FBI in the wake of the San Bernardino terrorist attack. But it was a pretty well-spoken and nuanced take on the danger of giving the government sort of a duplicate key or or a backdoor door into these encrypted devices and how the costs of doing that, both in allowing the government to access private data and potentially opening that door for bad actors, cyber criminals, or our foreign adversaries, that ends up outweighing the benefit of getting information that's on a single device. And I think, you know, to be to be honest, that's not something I would have expected to hear from somebody who had who led the Department of Homeland Security. I would be more surprised perhaps once you're out of the federal government, you've had a few years to digest your I think he's, you know, he was secretary up until 2009. So we're all getting old here. It's been 10 years. (laughs) You might have more latitude to sort of take a step back and think about what the broader consequences of these policies are. Because I mean, the official position of the Justice Department in both the Obama and Trump administrations has basically been as many backdoors as we can get. We want them. We don't want encryption to prevent us from being able to solve either terrorist threats or garden variety crime. So I thought it was really interesting to hear him have that perspective. I mean, I think another point that that stuck with me is how we are slowly awakening to a lot of these challenges. I think it did take something like the 2016 election. and. The Mueller investigation and everything we found out since then to recognize this challenge of disinformation on social media, I think it just was sort of off of our radar, even though the problem, as he said, has has existed for a long time and has existed. Uh, in its current capacity for several years, dating back to at least you know, 2014, 2015. So I thought that was interesting as well.
0: It really struck me that it, it seems like a lot of his views are, are really coming from a practical point of view.
2: Yeah. He has a unique perspective because he's been on the inside, but he's also spent the last 10 years as an analyst. So I think he can come at it from you know wearing those two different hats. But I'm cool with whatever he says, as long as he says it on our podcast. But I was, <laughs> I was particularly pleased to hear that he had uh, more civil liberties friendly takes than <laughs> yeah. uh, perhaps I would have anticipated. Right. So you know, I, I think it's, it's sort of eye opening. And, you know, the the broader lesson here is that I think there's more widespread recognition that cuts across political ideologies of the evolution of threats against us. We are no longer dealing with the threats that existed in the post-911 world, even mm-hmm. though... You know, technically, we still have the authorization for the use of military force in Afghanistan. Technically, the Patriot Act is still in effect. Mm -hmm. But just because those policies are there doesn't mean that the threats have remained static. And so I think sometimes it's important for all of us to step back and be like, okay, what is really a problem now? And I think he was really apt in talking about smaller scale terrorist attacks inspired online inspired by extremists um, using online platforms, using algorithms, using social media manipulation and the spread of disinformation. Um, and this is the kind of stuff that keeps me up at night. Yeah. That and my and my baby, but those two things, the <laughs> right. things that keep me up at night. Right,
0: right. Well, again, we want to thank former US Secretary of Homeland Security Michael Chertoff for joining us. He is now the head of the Chertoff Group. And I also want to uh, send out a thanks to everyone on our staff here at the CyberWire for making that interview happen and uh, putting together all the details dotting the i's and crossing the t's to make that possible. A g- really great crew here. The Caveat Podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of DataTribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our thanks to the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security for their participation. You can learn more at mdchhs.com. Our coordinating producers are Kelsey Bond and Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening.